Today's reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, and can be found on page 968 in the Pew Bibles. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Hope you're doing well. Hope you had... A good week, or at least a decent enough week. Maybe you were uh, with us for the block party last night, and uh, there we go, a few made it there. And uh, we had, um, had a good time. We had a lot of uh, folks uh, come in and uh, that were not Calvary people, and so it was great getting to know many of our neighbors, and, uh, and if you were there for that, that was fantastic. If not, next year. But uh, hope you're doing well uh, this week. The Lord is with us uh, in the rain and the shine. So however your week has been going, uh, the love and the grace of God is with you, which is the point of our sermon series, yet always rejoicing, right? Not always rejoicing because life is good, but always rejoicing because God is good. And as long as we have the love of Christ, we always have an occasion to to rejoice, well, Pastor Eric finished out chapter 9 last week in our sermon series here on 2 Corinthians, which concluded a two-chapter section focused on a relief effort uh, that Paul was organizing for the poor back in Jerusalem. So we're starting chapter 10 this morning, and as we start chapter 10, we're starting a whole new section of Paul's letter. So if you've been with us throughout our sermon series on 2 Corinthians, uh, you'll recall that, uh, that Paul uh, had said he was going to come visit the Corinthians to collect this relief gift that we were talking about the last number of weeks, but then he hadn't actually shown up. And that had caused some consternation between Paul and the Corinthians, and it had opened up a door for some so-called super apostles. That's the term that Paul uses to refer to the false teachers that had come in to Corinth after he had left, it opened up the door for these super apostles to speak disparagingly about Paul. And they were accusing Paul of not being dependable, and therefore his gospel wasn't dependable as well. So in the first section of the letter, Paul is giving an account of himself as to why he did not come to Corinth, and that runs really the whole first seven chapters. And in the second section of the letter, eight and nine, Paul says, I am indeed coming. Here's, I'm going to come and collect this relief gift, and here's the way I want you to organize yourselves in light of my coming. And so that's what we've been looking at. And then in this last section of the letter, which we're starting this morning, chapters uh, 10 through 13, Paul is going to make some direct and pointed comments to the Corinthians about these super apostles. And uh, so... 
Uh, he's going to be dealing with these false teachers when he arrives to collect the gift, and he wants the Corinthians to be aware of this. So now last week, uh, Pastor Eric made fun of me for outlining my sermon. Do you remember that? <laughs> Pastor Eric, do you remember that? Because I remember that. I remember that. And uh, I'm going to outline my sermon again this week anyway. And thank you. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, three parts to this sermon. Three parts to this sermon. And uh, first, I'm going to clarify in the first part this situation between Paul and the super apostles. Like what exactly is going on between them? We know we've been talking about them throughout the sermon series. We know they're false teachers, but what is kind of the rub of their relationship? And then in the last two sections of the sermon, I want to offer two points of application based on how Paul is going to deal with the super apostles that gives us some insight about how we can deal with similar situations in our life, right? So this first section here of the sermon, looking at the situation between Paul and the super apostles, and that's here in our text in chapters 10, verses 1 and 2. So just looking at the first couple of verses here, Paul begins 10.1 by stating, I, Paul, myself, entreat you. I, Paul, myself, entreat you. As I've noted in past sermons, Paul often uses throughout his writings, throughout 2 Corinthians, the apostolic we. He often speaks of his ministry in the third person plural because he's including in his ministry also the, the ministry of his fellow apostles and apostolic workers like Titus and Timothy. So he'll often say we this and we that. But here, Paul focuses on himself. I, Paul, myself. Because he knows that the real point of conflict, and he's now getting into this whole section where he's going to tackle these false teachers. He knows that the real point of conflict between team true apostle and team super apostle centers on Paul the apostle. Paul is the apostle to the apostles. Titus and Timothy are important and helpful in Paul's ministry, but Paul is the founding pastor of the church in Corinth. And it was his presence and authority that established the church. And he knows that these false prophets, these false apostles rather, have been making accusations about him personally. And so as he takes on these false teachers, he doesn't hide behind the team of apostles. He's been called out by these false teachers, and so he steps forward. And he says, I, Paul, myself. And then look here at this second half of verse 1. He says, I, Paul, myself, I who am humble when face to face, but bold toward you when I am away. One translation helpfully puts the words humble, humble and bold in quotes to signify that Paul is repeating what his critics have been saying. So look down in verse 10, 10. Just look down here in the next week's passage. Paul says, for they say, and he's referring to the super apostles, these false teachers, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. So what these false teachers have been saying about Paul is that he talks a big game, but he can't back it up. He says all these bold things in his letters when he's far away, but when he's in present, when he's in person, he's very humble. Now, it's important to recognize, too, to fully understand the significance of this critique, what the super apostles mean by the term humble. 
In the Greco-Roman culture, humility was not considered a virtue. Now, I don't mean that everyone knew humility was a good thing, but no one practiced it. I mean that humility, as we understand it today, was not viewed as a positive social trait in the Greco-Roman world. So Jesus and his ministry and his legacy that we are inheritors of, that our whole culture is an inheritor of, he taught the whole Western world to valorize humanity or humility. And that's why our culture thinks of it in a positive way today. That's why if I say this is a humble person, that's seen as a compliment in our culture. But in that culture, to say someone was humble wasn't always a compliment. Most often it was an insult outside of the Christian communities. The Greco-Roman philosophers of the day, they denigrated humility and said it was, an, it was unbecoming of a real man. So humility was for slaves or was for the poor or for other social outcasts. And you only gave way humbly because you were weak or servile. So basically, when these false teachers are saying that Paul's presence is humble or that Paul is humble, they're saying that he talks a big game in his letters, but in his personal presence, he's servile and powerless. He can't back up the things that he says. And this accusation is related back to Paul's failure to come to Corinth when he said he would. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, you don't necessarily need to turn there, but back in Corinthians chapter 4, his first letter to the church in Corinth, he had told them he was going to come. The super apostles were already operative. They were already causing problems. And Paul says, I'm going to come. I'm going to collect this relief gift. and I'm going to deal with these super apostles. And he says, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. That's what he tells the Corinthians. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? And these super apostles were saying that Paul has no real power. We're the ones that have true spiritual power. Paul says, I'm going to come and I'm going to find out their power. We'll see who has the real power. So he talks this big game in his letter to the, in the first Corinthians, but then he doesn't show up. And the super apostles make a point about that. You can imagine what they're saying. They started saying all the things we've been talking about, that he talks a big game, but he can't back it up. So look now at verse 2 here in our passage. Paul says, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. This phrase, walk according to the flesh, connects back to earlier in the letter, in chapter 2, verse 17, where Paul writes, was I vacillating when I said I was going to come visit you? He's already explaining himself why he didn't come. Uh, was I vacillating when I said I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? Yes, yes, saying yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. So because Paul didn't show, the false teachers were saying that Paul was a weak-kneed vacillator who walked only according to the flesh. And if those aren't fighting words, I don't know what is. I mean, if you are an apostle and someone calls you a weak-kneed vacillator who only walks according to the flesh, well, that'll get your back up. And, in fact, it has gotten Paul's back up. So in 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 2, Paul is acknowledging that he has heard the critique of these super apostles. All right, so that's the situation between Paul and 
and the Corinthians, or to, between Paul and the super apostles, right? All right, so here's our first point of application. Paul deals with sin, and so should we. Paul deals with sin, and so should we. In verse 3, Paul says, even though I walk in the flesh, even though we walk in the flesh, we don't walk according to the flesh. We are not of the flesh, and we don't wage war according to the flesh. And then in verses 4 through 6, he talks about how he does wage war, in fact, and the weapons that he does fight with. Look what he says here in verse 4 through 6. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And the language that he's using here actually is drawn from ancient siege warfare. So invading armies, when they would come in to try to conquer a walled city, they would besiege it. And they would come in and they would invade the city and they would destroy the city's stronghold. So the stronghold of the city was like the interior fortified part of the city that if the walls got broken, the people of the city would flood back and they would go into the stronghold as their last defense. So when you were taking a city, if you went in and you destroyed the stronghold, you destroyed the last bastion of hope for that city. And Paul's saying that he has power to destroy strongholds. And he is able to pull down lofty, look at the language here, able to uh, pull down every lofty opinion. And so great cities that had lofty towers, they would be pulled down by the invading army and the strongholds would be destroyed. And then everyone in the city would be taken captive. And the point that Paul is making is that he's going to come to Corinth like an invading army to break the power of these false teachers and their false teaching. Now, I don't know what you imagine that that might look like when Paul rides into town. And I don't really know either. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 that we don't fight with the weapons of this world. And in verse 3 here of our passage, Paul says that the weapons that he wages war with, are not according to the flesh. So I don't think it means that Paul is going to suit up like a Roman soldier and get on a war horse and come riding into Corinth. But I don't think it means that he's just going to come in for a little theological debate either. Let me read you another example of when Paul broke the power of another false teacher. You can turn if you want, but go back into your Bible to Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13... Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey, and they've, they're in the island of Cyprus. So Paul has come into a town, and he is preaching the gospel. And so we can pick up Acts chapter 13 and verse 6. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus. He was with the proconsul, so the Roman proconsul. Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and 
and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now that was something, right? Struck the false prophet blind. So here the false teachers in Corinth are bragging about their power, and Paul says, I will come and I will show you power. And this is the kind of power he has at his disposal. He can strike false teachers blind. Paul knew how to bring the thunder when he needed to. And he's telling the Corinthians that he's coming ready to punish the disobedience of the false teachers who are standing in the way of his true gospel. You can look down again here into verse 11, back into chapter 10, 2 Corinthians. Chapter 10, 2 Corinthians, he's warning He's warning the Corinthians of how he's going to come. He says, let such a person, let these false teachers understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. My, I can back up my talk, Paul is saying. The false teachers had seen Paul's Christ-like humility, and they had confused it for timidness. And they had seen his gentleness, and they had confused it for powerlessness. And they had seen his sufferings, and they confused it for weakness. But Paul wasn't timid, and he wasn't powerless, and he wasn't weak. And these false teachers were about to find out. God help them. Now, I don't want to press too hard into applying this principle of this point, independent of the principle I'm going to give in the next point. But it is important to note here and we're going to see this throughout this whole section, these three chapters, that sin does need to be dealt with. And Paul is going to deal with sin. He is quite concerned about the health of his congregation. And he knows that if he lets the teachings of these false teachers, these super apostles, fester in the Corinthian congregation, it will become like a cancer that destroys the church. So however we conceive of the grace and the long-suffering of God in Jesus, it doesn't mean that we should perpetually turn a blind eye to sin. Because sometimes the most loving thing that we can do is to confront sin. Now, psychologists will tell us that most of us are people-pleasers. Most of us avoid conflict. We don't like conflict. Not everybody, but that's most of us. But sometimes avoiding confrontation is just cowardice and it's a failure to love. Maybe some of you this morning, I don't know, you find yourself in some situation where you know that the Lord is calling you to step forward into confrontation, but you would rather step backward into peace. And the Lord is calling you to speak a hard word of challenge. But you would rather just keep speaking words of peace. And that was the failure of the Old Testament Jewish prophets and priests right before the judgment of God fell upon the nation of Israel. The Lord critiqued the leaders of Jerusalem, these Jewish prophets and priests, Jeremiah 6.11, he says, Because they have healed the wound of my people lightly 
saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They should have been preaching, like Jeremiah, a message of judgment to stave off the coming judgment of the Lord. But these false priests and prophets, they spoke peace, peace, when there was no peace. So we don't want to be like these false teachers and prophets who heal wounds lightly and call for peace when we should be suiting up for battle. We don't wage war with the weapons of this world. We don't wage war with the weapons of the flesh. But sometimes Jesus does call us to wage war. All right. Now, some of you, this next point's for you. Some of you need no admonition in that regard because you are ready to stomp on sin as soon as you see it in others. I mean, it just shows up in the room and you're going to squash it like a cockroach. And if that's you, then you need to heed this second point of application because Paul deals with the situation in Corinth with clemency, and so should we. To make this point, I want to draw attention to two particular elements in this passage. The word gentleness at the beginning here in chapter 1, uh, verse 1 rather, and then the phrase, when your obedience is complete, which is at the end of verse 6. So let's start with this word gentleness. The word translated here as gentleness comes from the Greek word epikeos. The term is only used twice in the New Testament, so it's not a very common word. And it's used once here in our passage, and then again in Acts 24 to speak of a Roman governor. Now, this word does have the idea of gentleness, but it more deeply means clemency. And the term clemency means to show restraint or to have forbearance or to have tolerance in how you deal with wrongdoing. And it was most often a term that was used of rulers, kings, governors, the emperor. So if the leaders of a city, let's say, rebelled against the emperor or against the king of the realm, and the emperor came in with his army and destroyed the rebellious leaders, but then spared the city and didn't wipe out the entire city, that was acting with clemency. Because sometimes when the emperor or the king would come to deal with the rebellious leaders of a city, they would sack the entire city, pull down the walls, kill everyone and everything, and everyone goes into slavery. But to act with clemency was to punish with moderation and wisdom. And so it was a word that was used of rulers who were not quick-triggered and knew how to be lenient. And Paul begins this whole warning passage by emphasizing that he is acting in the spirit of Christ's meekness and clemency. But here's the thing. This is not clemency towards the false teachers, but clemency on behalf of the Corinthians who may have sided with the false teachers. And Paul's primary concern throughout this whole section is that he doesn't pull the Corinthians, his beloved Corinthians, into the judgment that he's going to bring upon these false teachers. So in 10.1, Paul says, I entreat you, or some translations read, I beg of you. Well, what is he entreating them for? What is he begging of them? He's begging them to step away from the false teachers. Paul is worried that some in his congregation, he's heard reports, he's even seen it firsthand in one of his previous visits, 
have sided with these false teachers. And he is afraid that when he comes to deal finally with these super apostles, some of his own congregation will get swept up in the discipline that he's going to bring. So in verse 2, he's basically saying, I hope when I come and I show how bold I can be against these false teachers that don't have to be bold against you too. And that's why he's entreating them and he's begging them, step away from the judgment that I'm going to have to bring upon these false teachers. Which is why at the end of verse 6, he says that he's going to be ready to punish every disobedience, meaning every disobedience of these false teachers, but when? When your obedience, Corinthians, is complete. He's saying, I've been waiting to judge the disobedience of these false teachers until I have given you sufficient time for you to enact your own obedience because I don't want to use my apostolic authority in your life in a negative and punishing way. And that's the reason that he has delayed his coming. In 2.1, Paul says that he refrained from coming as he said he was going to because he didn't want to have another painful visit. When he had come the last time, so many of the Corinthians had joined up with Team Super Apostle that if he had cast out the Super Apostles then at that time, he would have had to cast out many of his own congregation. And he knew he was going to have to come and amputate the gangrene of the Super Apostles. But he wanted to spare as much as possible the good tissue in the Corinthian church. And so that's why he wrote instead of showing up as he had said he was going to. So if you skip ahead to the end of our chapter... Chapter 13, verses 9 and 10, this is the point that Paul finishes with as he finishes the letter. Verse 9, he says, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things, while I am away from you, so that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. And he delayed his visit and dealing with the super apostles to give the Corinthians of his congregation more time to repent and move onto the side of obedience. All right, so where's our application in this? I think the application on this point is that we do need to deal with sin, yes. But we need to deal with sin with clemency, with wisdom, with moderation. If we deal too harshly or too quickly with sin, if we drop a bomb on it as soon as it appears, we will usually do more harm than good. We will kill too much of the good tissue. And maybe that's a word for some of you here this morning. Because maybe you're in some situation where you're tempted just to drop a bomb on it. Or maybe your personality is such that that's how you approach lots of situations. And you're too quick to bring the thunder. You're too quick to strike people blind. You're too quick to stomp on sin as soon as it appears. So maybe you're a parent. Some of you are parents here this morning. Your kids do things that need to be addressed, as all kids do. But rather than taking a moment to find out what actually needs to be addressed, you just nuke the whole situation. And in your zeal to root out sin, you are inadvertently nuking something good and precious in your child. 
while back, a number of years ago, my wife and I, we read a book called Your Child is Not Lazy. And the point of the book was that there are certain uh, behaviors that every parent wants to discipline. Laziness, anger, this, that, the other thing, right? And we see the behaviors and we just make these assumptions about what's driving them and we try to deal with the behavior, behavior without getting down beneath the surface to find out what actually is going on in the child's life that might constitute a legitimate need. And that's true wisdom to have for parenting. It's true wisdom to have if you're an employer at work. It's true in your friendships and your relationships. We need to be able to see the true needs and not just knee-jerk reflexively jump upon sin as soon as it appears. This is why we need to be slow to anger and slow to judgment and why we need the Lord to help direct our judgment and our confrontations with sin. We do need to confront sin. We even at times need to judge sin. But when we judge too quickly or we judge in anger, we do not bring about the righteousness of God, the scripture says. But when we surrender our power of judgment to the Lord, when we take a moment and let the Lord guide us by his spirit, when we invite him to speak into our confrontations with sin, then he guides us and directs our assault upon sin. And it becomes a surgical strike of clemency rather than a carpet bombing of wrath. Sometimes even the Lord will tell us that we need to let certain sins that we see pass by for a time. Because addressing it now, in this moment, will force a confrontation with someone that the person we are trying to help simply won't be able to bear. And that was why Paul let the confrontation pass by the last time that he was in Corinth. Because he knew if he dealt with it, if he pressed the issue, if he really called down the thunder in that moment, he was going to lose too many in his congregation. And so he retreated back out and he sent a letter instead. But now he is going to come and he is going to deal with it. But he's doing it under the direction and the wisdom and the clemency of Jesus. And he wants the Corinthians to know that. All right, so I don't know what situation you're facing this morning. And I don't know if you are more prone to avoid necessary conflict. Most of us, I think. Or you're more prone to stomp on all sin without clemency. The Lord will call us to deal with the sin that we see in others. So if that maybe is a needed reminder for some of you that just want to avoid any kind of conflict, any kind of confrontation. The Lord will call us to deal with the sin that we see in others. But he will call us to do it with clemency, with wisdom, with meekness, with gentleness, following his spirit's leading. I want to connect Paul's visit to Corinth with another visit. Paul had come once. We'll finish with this. Paul had come once to Corinth. And he had said that he was going to come again. But then he delayed his coming. Not because he was weak or vacillating, but because he was filled with clemency and love for his people. And he was giving those that he loved in his congregation time to repent to embrace obedience. Not everyone understood what Paul was doing. They didn't understand why he had delayed his coming. Many in the church in Corinth had wrongly concluded that Paul wasn't coming, that he was too weak to deal with sin, that he couldn't keep his promises. But he was coming, and he would deal with sin. 
And his coming would be the vindication of the gospel truth that he had been preaching. And it would mean the destruction of the false teacher's heresy. So whose coming does that perhaps remind you of? Read you another coming that the scriptures speak of. 2 Peter chapter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and as a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Paul knows that Jesus one day will come to bring judgment upon the earth. And Paul knows that Jesus is patient and slow to fulfill that promise, not because he's weak, not because he vacillates, not because he can't do it, but because he's giving us time to repent and to get on the side of obedience. And so as Paul then brings his own judgment into the Corinthian church to deal with the sin that is there, he does so in the spirit and the model of Christ's judgment. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus, speaking of this last day of judgment, Jesus says that on that last day, he will say to the wicked, depart from me, you accursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And St. Irenaeus commenting on Jesus' statement here, he says, it indicates that eternal fire was not originally prepared for humanity, but for him who beguiled humanity, the devil, and who caused humanity to offend. For him, I say, the devil, who is the chief of apostasy, and for those angels who became apostate along with him. And Irenaeus' point is that Jesus is calling humanity to step away from the apostasy and the false teaching of the devil because he is going to come and bring judgment upon the powers of evil and wickedness in this world. And Jesus does not want us to be swept up in the devil's judgment. So the question then for you this morning is, have you made good on the clemency of Jesus? If you have, if you have placed your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, then let Paul's clemency towards the church in Corinth be a reminder of Jesus' clemency towards you. Let this be a cause of rejoicing and a reminder of God's love for you. But if you have not, you've not received Jesus as your Savior, if you've not looked to him to deliver you from the coming judgment, then let Paul's assertion that he will indeed deal with the sin of the false teachers be a reminder to you of Jesus' assertion that he too will deal with the sin of the false teacher. Not just in Corinth, but in the whole world. But he hasn't come yet. Now is a day of clemency. Now is a day of salvation. This is the point that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He writes, we appeal to you, Corinthians, 
that you not receive the grace, or we could say the clemency, of God in vain. For the Lord says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, Paul writes, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This day in which you and I find ourselves, this is the day of salvation. The day where we can reach out and lay hold of the grace that God is still extending out into the world. There will be a day when the doors to the ark are closed, and the Lord will descend with the trumpet cry and the loud shout of the archangel. And then it will be too late. But before that day, this is the day of clemency and grace, the day of salvation. And God's posture towards humanity is a posture of love and a posture of welcoming us back. He loves you. And he doesn't want you to get swept up into the judgment that he will bring on the devil and his angels. But he will bring judgment. He will not delay forever. He will not fail to keep his promise. The promise that he made, as the Apostle John records in the book of Revelation, the promise to destroy the destroyers of the earth. It is his commitment to the health and to the well-being of the world that he has made, to the creation that he loves. He will have to eradicate the cancer of sin. So he gives us time now to repent to come into the kingdom that is one day coming upon the whole world. If you've not received the salvation of God that is afforded to you through the clemency of Christ, then this day is still the day of salvation. This day can still be your day. You can enter into this kingdom that is coming, even now this day. You can do it through a simple prayer, something as simple as, God, I am sorry for my sins. I give myself wholly to you. Forgive me for Jesus' sake. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Make me part of your kingdom. And he welcomes you in. There's no good deeds you have to perform. There's no social standing you have to have. It's no ethnicity or race or financial standings you have to have. He welcomes all into his kingdom freely and graciously if you but want to come in. And as you come into his kingdom and be part, become his child, then you can look forward to the day when he comes finally in judgment as a day of rejoicing and a day of deliverance and a day of salvation. Father, thank you that you have given us Christ who is the great occasion of clemency in our lives. Thank you that you have delayed his coming to give us all time to repent. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as well in our own little small j judgment situations to judge with the same sort of clemency that you have bestowed upon the world. We don't want to forestall it indefinitely if it is needed, but we also don't want to do it reflexively or without care. So God, help us. Help us to embrace your clemency and to give clemency, we pray in your son's name. Amen.